Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. Pastor Ray Minikin is a highly respected Indigenous pastor and leader. He is also director of Bunjil Consultancies, which supports Aboriginal leadership and business initiatives. This is Pastor Ray Minikin's Bible study, where he looks at how we think biblically about constitutional recognition of Australia's First Nations people. This is part two of Pastor Ray's Bible study. We might start, huh? Thanks for coming again. Our brother here has just sent me this map and uh, we just wanted to let you know that this is where a lot of our languages are still spoken. And we have some of those speakers here to, today. Wasn't that band fantastic last night? Yeah, brilliant. I would just look... Uh, Yesterday, we, we, we'll just do a recap on yesterday. We looked at, uh, I mean, I'll start again. What do we want? Now. When do we want it? Now. <laughs> what do we got? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they said the right word this time in the Christian audience. <laughs> so that's what we're looking at here today and uh, yesterday we had a look at uh, this particular text from Deuteronomy 32 I'll read it again remember the days of old consider the generations long past ask your father and he will tell you your elders and they will explain to you when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. And we also looked at the Acts passage as well. And uh, as you can see in this particular map here, when the Lord gave the Walbury people, his old man here, his country, or the Pintabee, or over here where you can't see my country anymore, but the Kabi Kabi people, the Gurang people. He gave us those boundaries. He set those boundaries for us. And in the, in the, uh, um, this thing's going, in the Acts passage, it says that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. For from one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed uh, times and history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And if you would have went to Japanunga's uh, study yesterday, he would have showed you some of those particular ways in which the Walpuri people reach out to our Creator. And uh, right across this country there, 
lots of our indigenous peoples reached out for the last 50,000 years to our Creator. Uh, consider that too. But the then we looked at those two stories, Naboth, and we looked at that very, very powerful passage in when the king went to buy his piece of, piece of property, Naboth said to him these famous and powerful words that I think is the driver behind a lot of uh, our native title rights, our, uh, the, the Mabo decision, those very famous and powerful words. God forbid, King Ahab, that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. It's a very powerful statement. And it's at the heart of this particular statement that Naboth made to the king that you'll find the driver behind all that we're looking for and searching for in terms of land rights. In a sense, if we were to ask that question again, what do we want? We'd be saying our inheritance. Our inheritance rights. Because, as we explained yesterday, these old people here will take you out to their country and show you, look, this is my grandmother's country. This is my grandfather's country. This is my inheritance. You can't take that from me. And God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And that's just not only true for Australia. We're going to go a bit further than that today. We're going to look at uh, <coughs> another particular passage. Oh, gone the wrong way. We're going to look at Habakkuk. Very fascinating book. But it sort of brings us into this story again in a different way. And this is what uh, Habakkuk said. God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil, stare trouble in the face day after day? Anarchy and violence break out, quarrels and fights all over the place. Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. God's response was, look around at the godless nations. Look long and hard. Well, go to the nations and have a look there. Brace yourself for a shock. Something's about to take place and you're going to find it hard to believe. And so this was Habakkuk's cry and search for justice and God's response. Go to the nations. Now, if you look at that particular passage, it summarises the reality of many Aboriginal communities or Indigenous nations because this is what we're crying for. <laughs> We know what it's like to cry for the police. Cry for help. Sing out and yell murder, genocide, all those kind of very powerful uh, emotions that come from that. And said, God said, go to the mountains. So today, oops, I'm going to tell you just two stories, maybe three, about the issues that confront Aboriginal people. The first one is this, uh, the Cherokee Nation. We're going to go to this nation. Now, the Cherokee Nation, 
They lived in the state of Georgia in America, around that particular area in the Mississippi area. They had a treaty called the Treaty of Holston in 1792 with the United States government. And here's some of the contents of that treaty. The establishment of uh, <coughs> perpetual peace and friendship between the two peoples. Cherokees would acknowledge the protection of the United States. Prisoners of war, that's an interesting one. Prisoners of war to be returned. So the Cherokee nation had a few of US prisoners of war there. Boundaries were to be established between the Cherokee lands in the United States. Stipulation of a road by the United States. United States to regulate trade. Guarantees by the United States to the lands of the Cherokee people have not been ceded to the United States. No US citizen may settle within the Cherokee lands and those who do may, not be, pu may be punished by the Cherokee. No US citizen may hunt within the Cherokee lands. The Cherokee must deliver up criminals to the United States. US citizens committing crimes within the Cherokee areas are to be punished. Retaliation restrained by both nations. Cherokees to give notice of pending attacks by other tribes against the United States. United States to make presents to the Cherokees for the promotion of having the Cherokees take up an ag agrarian culture, both part peoples to cease any animosities held against each other. If you read the story of the Cherokee, you'll find that they became very agrarian and became a very successful people living in houses and taking up agriculture and and all kinds of things are very, very successful within the state of Georgia based upon this treaty. You see where the treaty is, 1792. Take note of that date. Almost 50 years later, the Cherokee, by the US government, broke this treaty and forced the Cherokee people to march some I don't know how many thousands of miles, into Oklahoma. We know it as the Trail of Tears today. But this is the original treaty that they signed. The Cherokee Nation were removed in 1838. Am I doing something wrong? The treaty lasted 46 years. 46 And approximately 2,000 of the 6,000 of these, 16 or 20,000 people were re relocated, perished along the way. The Trail of Tears. Now the question you have to ask yourself isn't the deep emotional feelings that we have for the Cherokee Nation. But who gave the US government yeah. the power and the authority to remove them? Where did their power come from? We here in Australia are talking about the similar issues. Actually, if I go back to that treaty, we would love to have at least a few little items. <laughs> in our treaty with the Australian government. But we haven't even entered into that conversation. All we're doing 
is at this particular stage in our journey anyways, these cliches, what do we want? Land rights, sovereignty, all this stuff. We have to go beyond the cliches and really analyze some of the deeper issues that are there behind it. I was gonna go back to this one here. I wanna now talk about not just only the Cherokee Nation, where the US reneged on that treaty and forced them off their land. But here's the Pekin Shore. I'm not quite sure where they live. But the story is, goes like this. There was a uh, non-indigenous living amongst them. His name was Johnson. And he asked the Bianca Shore, look, I've got, you've got this beautiful land here. Can I have a piece of this particular part of your land so I can go and grow some crops? They agreed, go, plant your crops. One day, another bloke comes along called Macintosh, and he sees this wonderful land. He says, oh, I'm going to go and buy that land. And so he goes to the US government and says, I want to buy that piece of land. And he bought it. Question, who owns the land? What do we want? Now, the Johnson versus Macintosh decision is a very, very important decision in US lawmaking. Because what, it's called the Marshall decision. And if you look in all of the land claims around the world, by indigenous peoples, this decision becomes very upfront and foremost in the ways in which judges make decisions about land matters in relationship to indigenous peoples, whether it's here in Australia, in America, Canada, amongst the Maori people, even Africa, particularly amongst the bush people of the, of the Kalahari Desert. There's this huge, big, precedent that was set by this judge, Marshall. It actually clarifies, in US law anyways, what they call property rights. And every student, of, or every lawyer, law student in the US knows this particular decision. Because what it did was, it said to the Piancature, as well as Johnson, you do not own the land. We, the US government, own it. And he based his decision on what we know today, in retrospect, as the doctrine of discovery. This is a very, very powerful doctrine. And I'd like to uh, just go back and try to give us some understanding of what this doctrine is. There was, in those days, as you know, going back into the 12th, 13th and 14th century, the popes ruled the world. If you became the pope, you were the ultimate authority on the planet, especially within European nations and amongst those particular nations. One day, <coughs> there was a, uh, a king, King Alfonso of Portugal, he wanted to go and invade this other country. 
But in order to do that, he needed God's authority. So who does he go to? He goes to the Pope, Pope Benedict. And he says, or Boniface in this particular case. There's a couple of other pontiff uh, posts behind this as well. But this particular one I'll bring to you is called Dum Diversus. He says, mate, I want to go and invade this country. He says, you can do that. You can go and this is what you can do to them. I'll just give you a few, few, uh, few uh, insights into this Dum Diversus. <laughs> you can go and subjugate that enemies of Christ, namely the Saracens, and bring back with powerful arms to the faith of Christ at the authority of the, of the Apostolic See support you in this. Those rising against the Catholic faith and struggling to ex extinguish Christian religion must be resisted by the faithful of Christ with courage and firmness. Your Royal Majesty, in the most sacred intention of this kind, we grant to you full and free power through the apostolic authority by this edict to invade, to conquer, to fight, to subjugate the Saracens and pagans and other infidels and other enemies of Christ, to make them into slaves. The basis of this particular doctrine of discovery also affects Africa, the slavery movement from Africa. It affected every indigenous planet, a country on the planet, because it gave King Alfonso this incredible power <coughs> to go and invade these countries. The reasons why you white fellows are in my country is because of this doctrine the doctrine of discovery, coming from this Pope. So when we're talking about the issues around land rights, constitutional recognition, sovereignty, to me, it's first and foremost a theological argument. Because it was the representative of our Creator who made this possible for other nations to invade other nations. Now, each of the other nation groups, whether it be France or Spain or um, England, developed their own ways of interpreting this particular doctrine. So it's only a one-page doctrine. If you download it off the net, read it. But this is the, this is the driver behind our dispossession, so-called behind the ways in which people came in and committed the genocide on our land. We know from this particular doctrine that Australia is a huge big crime scene. And we have to approach it from that particular perspective, that it is a crime scene. Criminal activities have had been happening here since 1788. And as we saw in the uh, Piancashore case as well as Cherokee case, <coughs> the whole of the planet now has become a crime scene based on this particular doctrine. And we have to go back into that history, look at what happened back there, and then we can understand why we're in the situation that we're in. And then we can examine this particular doctrine in a different light and in a different way. The other part of this doctrine that the uh, Pope gave to uh, uh, King Alfonso is that 
when people go out there and start doing all this slaughtering and murdering, all these sinful acts, these evil acts, he says, those departed from this world will restore you and those accompanying you remaining in sincerity and unity through the present letter to pure innocence in which you and they existed from baptism. So in other words, if you went out and killed them, you're free from any criminal activity. Your sins are already forgiven before you even, even commit the crime. Wow. Wow, what a law. Let that sink in. That's the doctrine of discovery. This is what needs to be repudiated. Now, in terms of our history and our story and the ways in which indigenous peoples have come together right across the planet, it's only in the last, uh, I'd say the last 30 or 40 years that people have, our people have come to grips with this, have started to do the research necessary and actually approach the Pope, not this Pope, but I think Pope John and asked him to apologize on behalf of the Catholic Church for what they did to all of us. But the doctrine of discovery is a driver that brought Cook to our shores, took Columbus to America, took the Spanish down to South America. Actually, there's a good, there's a good movie that you might want to revisit again. It's called The Mission with... Uh, hmm? Robert De Niro. You know, there was a priest over there. In order to stop this slaughter, the legitimate slaughter, according to the Spanish, of those indigenous peoples, he went around baptising everybody. <laughs> Making them Christian, you see? Because the moment you make them Christians, you can't kill them. <laughs> That's how they... How they uh, made this particular doctrine of discovery legal because if you weren't a Christian then you were dead you were finished you were nothing and so when you come here to Australia under this doctrine of discovery you realise that this other doctrine of Terranullius is just an automatic simple outcome of this doctrine Terranullius hey no one lives here we don't recognize you. You are nothing. You are nobody. <coughs> and so we'll take over your lands. We'll come in here. We'll settle here. We won't make a treaty with you. We won't do anything with you. We'll just take over. From that moment on, Australia became a crime scene. And we now, as uh, Aboriginal people, need to get into CSI again. You know, <laughs> crime scene investigators. <laughs> and look at this crime scene. It is a, such a serious issue that we need to have a look at, based upon dumb diversus and other doctrines of discovery coming from the Pope. So the United Nations Permanent uh, Forum on uh, Indigenous Issues noted that the doctrine of discovery was the foundation of the violation of all Indigenous human <coughs> rights. So 
Here's some of the things that the doctrine gave to these different powerful nations on earth. Theologically, it provided the spiritual rationale for European nations to invade our countries, to conquer non-Christian lands, to confiscate other people's lands, to treat indigenous peoples as animals. You know, coming alongside this particular doctrine, or out of this particular doctrine, perhaps emerged the um, Darwinian theories, the social Darwinism, which placed us, particularly us as Aboriginal people, uh, not as animals, but even before animal. We didn't even, I think, I think we got there before the billabong, and before the microbes in the billabong. <laughs> so we weren't anywhere on that scope of the theory of evolution. And so this particular doctrine gave them the license to do that, another crime scene. No European title to land on which they lived, the, um, justified removing our children, killing or committing genocide, stripped in indigenous peoples of our rights to self-determination, provided rationale for taking land away from the indigenous peoples with the support of the federal law, now, how long ago was that? That's only what, this is not even 10 years ago that our federal government issued a law to send the military into a place called the Northern Territory, called the, Internet, in, uh, 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 the NT Intervention. They got the power from here. You've got to understand that. Language destruction, cultural practice destroyed, justifies white supremacy and white privilege. In our contemporary thing, we know this story very well. Excessive poverty, high teenage suicides. Yeah. I mean, we had to come away from uh, Sydney today, uh, yesterday because of, it was very difficult for us to draw away from a, a suicide there. High alcohol and other drug usage, extreme instances of diabetes, high unemployment, high imprisonment rates, decrease in communal living, domestic and family violence, all of these things come out of this particular doctrine. Or a result of this particular doctrine being imposed on Indigenous Australians, Indigenous peoples around the globe, including Africa. So that's the doctrine of discovery. And I'm only gi giving it to you in five minutes. <laughs> but I'm opening up your minds to the issues around this particular issue around sovereignty, land rights, native title, and those particular factors. Actually, if you look at the Native Title uh, Act, you can almost see where the uh, you know, uh, particularly John, John, John Howard's amendments to, those, to the Act comes from this, how they've got this power to do this, given by the Pope. And so the first and foremost, the issues around this is a theological issue before it becomes a political issue. This is an issue between us and God. And that's why I gave you that text from Habakkuk. <coughs> Let me just go back to it. Listen to our cry. God, 
How long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil? Stare trouble in the face day after day. Anarchy and violence break out. Quarrels and fights all over the place. Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung. And justice stands on its head. What a description, an apt description of our, not just only of our contemporary scene, but perhaps being rolled out across our planet. And God says, look, go to the nations and have a good look. Study there and see if that's impacted on us. Oh, I just want to go back to this one little thing here. When the Spanish came in and took over South America and other places, this is what they did. I'm not going to read the whole lot, but a huge, big document. They, many of them did it out in the oceans. And they said to this land here, in Spanish, to the indigenous peoples. I don't know if Cook said this to Australia. I have no idea. But they said, look, of all these nations, God our Lord gave charge to one man called St. Peter that he should be Lord and superior of all the men in the world, that all should obey him and that he should be the head of the whole church or the whole of the whole. One of these pon pontiffs who succeeded that St. Peter as Lord of the world in the dignity and seat which I have before mentioned made donation of these isles and terra firma to the aforesaid king and queen and to their successors, our lords. So their highness... Highnesses are kings and lords of these islands and land of terra firma by virtue of this donation. If you do not, I don't know, if you do not do this and maliciously make delay in it, I certify to you that with the help of God, we shall slaughter you people. That's what he read when they came to a country. They read this out to them from the boat in Spanish. And if the people couldn't respond and say, oh, well, hang on a sec. <laughs> Translation, please. No. And so they went in and they just slaughtered. Because they read the, the transcript from the Pope. They got the authority now. They can just go in and do what they want. I'd love to talk more about this, but we have to go on because I did say I'd talk about uh, constitutional recognition as well. And we're going through this particular process now in our contemporary society, in contemporary Australia. First of all, we have to, if we want to understand this particular issue in our own context, we've got to understand the original document that was written, the original constitution that was written here in Australia, and understand that document that was written there back there in 2000, uh, in, the, in the 1900s. But also understand before that, that every state in Australia, New South Wales, Victoria, 
all the states have their own constitutions. And actually, these constitutions of these states actually define the boundaries on which they live. So they've taken that th uh, the Deuteronomy passage and they've defined their boundaries, put in their constitution, under the crown, and taking control of our legs. And so you need to read those constitutions to understand the bigger constitutions. So we have all of these particular powers that control this country and its people. And when you look at the federal government, the power that controls us as, as Australian people are three things. The Crown, the Governor, and the Executive. <coughs> and if you read through that document, our uh, federal constitution at least, read through it and try to find any reference as Christians to God. You won't find one. There is no appeal to a higher power. Whereas if you go into the US constitution, under God, you know, <laughs> or the South African constitution, under God, God is mentioned in there, but not in our constitution, it's not there. Nowhere to be found any reference to a higher power. And actually when Bob Hawke opened a new parliament, he opened it, he didn't even have to open it in prayer because there's no reference to a higher power. We've become the, a much more secular country in the last uh, 40 or 50 years than any other country on the planet. So, when we're talking about this uh, particular doctrine, or this particular constitution, when they first framed it back in the 1900s, we weren't included. But we were the only nation groups that were mentioned in it, the Aboriginal people, okay? So back then, there's, we had a referendum in 1967 to give Aboriginal people a voice or a chance to vote, okay? This is what that particular section, 5126, said in its original constitution, that the people of any race, other than the Aboriginal race in any state, for whom it is deemed necessary to make special laws. So what that meant was, exceptionally for the, with, with the exception to the Northern Territory, but for Queensland, for New South Wales, each of those states had the power to make their own laws for us people. And so in Queensland, for example, we came under the Aboriginal, or here in New South Wales and Victoria, the Aboriginal Protection Act. I think it was Victoria who made the first Aboriginal Protection Act. We're here in this particular state here. It was there designed to protect us. <laughs> Language is power. <laughs> and uh, once those particular acts came into play, it then gave the power to those particular departments to define where we could live. And uh, here in New South, uh, here in. Uh, Victoria, you know, you had uh, a number of different missions and reserves, as well as in Queensland and New South Wales, 
These were designated where only Aboriginal people would live. For example, before 1967, so this is in my lifetime, your lifetime, and for some of you anyways, I'll exclude you, Brooke, <laughs> and my daughter. <laughs> I'm not giving away my age. <laughs> but in those days, a meeting like this, before 1967, would be illegal. All you white fellas would have been arrested in Queensland. You weren't allowed to go habit or congregate with Aboriginal people. It was against the law. <laughs> so this is not an ancient law here. And that's why they had to remove this here to give the federal government that power to make laws on our behalf and set up the Aboriginal Affairs Department. Because the old constitution was based upon the white Australia policy. That was simply it. If you came from Africa, you couldn't get into this country, sorry. <laughs> Asians, if you look at the, one of the acts there in Queensland which tried to get rid of all the Chinese because they were making too much, finding too much gold or whatever. <laughs> we, it was a white Australia policy up until that particular time in history, 1967, when it changed. And so they took out that word other than the Aboriginal race in any state, or they just took out the word Aboriginal. That's only one part of it. If you read the whole constitution, you, can, you, you gloss over that one, you go down to the last paragraph. Section 127, if you look, at, look, up, look it up in the new constitution, there is, it's, it's blank, you won't see anything there. But in the old constitution, this is what it says. In reckoning the numbers of people of the Commonwealth or of a state or other part of the Commonwealth, Aboriginal natives shall not be counted. So we weren't counted. They didn't know how many numbers there were in the constitution up until 1967. And now we go around, you know, you, when you do the census, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, that only came out in 1967. So we were mentioned in the Constitution, and then we were extracted from that because of the 1967 referendum. So when we're coming now into this issue around constitutional recognition, there are a few other issues or a few other things that we need to look at. I don't know if you can read all that, but New South Wales, this is New South Wales on that side, and Queensland have already done this. They've already given recognition to the Indigenous peoples. This is what the recognition of Aboriginal people is in the New South Wales 2011, when they made this law. The Parliament, on behalf of the people of New South Wales, acknowledges and honours the Aboriginal people as the state's first peoples and nations. Parliament on behalf of the New South Wales recognise that Aboriginal people as the traditional custodians and occupants of the land in New South Wales have a spiritual, social, cultural, <laughs> economic relationship with their traditional lands and waters and have made and continue to make a unique and lasting contribution to the identity of the state. Here's a little catch, okay? You've always got to read the fine print. <laughs> Nothing in this section creates any legal right or liability or gives rise to or affects any civil cause of action or right to review an administrative action 
or affects the interpretation of any act or law in force in New South Wales. So we've got the recognition, but without the rights. Same in Queensland. And the, the, the Queenslanders did this in 2001. The people of Queensland, free and equal citizens of Australia, intend through this constitution to foster the peace, welfare and good governance of Queensland and adopt the principles of the sovereignty of the people under the rule of law. This is just Queensland now, this is not Australia, okay? And the system of representative and responsible government prescribed by this constitution and honour the Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the first Australians, whose lands, winds and waters we all now share and pay tribute to their unique values and their ancient and enduring cultures which deepen and enrich the life of our community and determine to protect their unique environment and acknowledge the achievements of our forebears coming from many backgrounds and so on and so forth. And so they've given us this recognition. But like that little clause number three, nothing in this section creates any legal <coughs> liability. So there's no justification of how you can declare, okay, we're sovereign. Where is sovereignty? In Queensland, they've already declared it. I, I also read, you have to read the South Australian Constitution. It has a completely uh, different ways of dealing with Indigenous peoples as well as the West Australian Constitution and you get the Tasmanian Constitution. Well, we won't go there, but all of these different nation groups, all, the, all these different colonies have their own constitutions. They've got their own governor generals. And so it's still a colony of the Commonwealth or of the Crown. You need to keep that in your mind when we're talking about sovereignty and issues around constitutional recognition. It's already been done by these two states. I know South, South Australia is looking at doing it, West Australia, as well as I think Victoria. Victoria has gone down another track also. If you look at the ways in which they've enacted some of the recent laws in the ways in which they have given recognition <coughs> to Aboriginal sovereignty as well. So when we're talking about constitutional recognition, it's not nothing new. Now, they asked, they, what they did set up here in terms of that constitutional recognition was a, uh, what they call it, an expert panel to guide the Australian community in terms of what should go into that constitution and how the constitution will be changed through referendum. That's where we're going, where, that's where we are now. So what's in that, in those changes that we're looking at? And how's it going to affect Aboriginal people? Uh, this particular, what I'm showing you here, is one of the uh, responses to the government around constitutional recognition, which we at uh, our little, little church there in uh, Glebe made a response to it. We just simply said in our text that we believe that a treaty is the ultimate recognition of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first peoples. We recognise, however, that Australia may not be ready for such a broad-based discussion. And with this in mind, support steps in the recognition process as a step towards a conversation for a treaty. 
our people might not agree with, my, with us, and that's fine, but we just made this contribution. Now, there were seven <coughs> recommendations, and we supported the first one. Scar Tree supports a recommendation that the House of Parliament commit a full sitting day to debate, to debate the, the final report by the expert panel. We support the re repeal of Section 25 of the Constitution on the basis that it is outdated and not relevant to the views of contemporary Australia. Section 25 still gives the federal government powers to make laws for races of people. It's still a racist constitution, very racist. It favours white privilege and white supremacy. It's got to change. That's if we're Christian enough to make it change. We support also not including a new section in 127A on the basis that recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages are contained in the committee's proposed statement of recognition in the new section 51. They were going to change section 51 that we saw before. They took out the word Aboriginal, but they were going to put in there some other more uh, acceptable language around cultural and language, uh, re retaining our cultural language and stuff. The fourth recommendation was around uh, the repeal of Section 51. As you can see in that particular thing, this, the federal government still has the power to make laws on race. And uh, I might be a little bit cynical or I might be right out of line here, but I think that the ways in which we're dealing with our refugee crisis can be traced back to this particular Section 51. They still have the power to make laws based on race. Recommendation five. Uh, I won't read that. Hmm? Well, that's, that was uh, Parliament would make laws with respect to the cultures, languages and heritage and also the relationship of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander peoples with their traditional lands and waters. We prefer that the narrower scope on the basis that it provides greater opportunity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to make decisions for themselves about themselves, in other words, self-determination. However, we also recognise the challenges that such wording might, be, might pose both to a successful referendum and in practice, and on this basis support the current proposed wording of Section 51. In other words, we live now in a multicultural community and our people are very generous people. We're trying to f make sure that we are more inclusive than the original constitution. <coughs> and uh, I'll, I'll make some comment later. But of the three uh, structural options presented by the committee in its progress report, Scarred Tree supports option one, a new section 51A and a new section 116A. Now, you've got to understand that 116A is a very important part of the Constitution because it, it's, it's the part about the separation of church and state and how the church or religious people can't influence the ways in which uh, you know, the government is run or religion is not a factor in the ways in which people vote. Now that's in section 116, but as you can see in the ways in which the outworkings of this happen, 
I don't think it's going to be possible in our country, for example, to have a Muslim as our Prime Minister. We would not accept that, would we? Whereas, if you go to America, it took how many hundreds of years to get a black president? Now, whether they get another one in the next 200 or 300 years is up to, up to them, but you can see that these race-based pro-policies still are not inclusive of other races of people. And if you can look at this also in a recent decision that was made by the federal government to actually deport Maori people, mainly, back to New Zealand and take them out of our criminal system and send them back to, back to New Zealand. Unbeknown to, I, I, I shouldn't, unbeknown to us, I guess, and to the rest of us, that if you look at the constitution, the federal constitution, New Zealand is still included <laughs> in our federal constitution. And also, if you look at the New South Wales constitution, well, New Zealand came under the New South Wales constitution. And so it's a little, you know, you have to question whether the, the government is acting on behalf of the Australian people or it's still race-based. Recommendation 6 notes the recommendation that the referendum take place at or shortly after the next federal election in 2016. And we prefer that the referendum take place in 2017 on the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum. And we consider the strong symbolism holding it on the 50th anniversary to be a factor that may feed into a vision of a modern Australia and thereby improve voter turnout particularly with individuals that traditionally do not participate in the voting process. It will also give all groups, not simply those who support changes for the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, a greater opportunity to build support, particularly if Section 116 becomes part of the referendum question and in turn this could improve voter participation. However, we do not consider it as critical the need for clarity around a referendum date and therefore a support uh, support any recommendation sets this expectation before Parliament. And uh, the last recommendation there is uh, the recommendation to extend the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People's Recognition Act 2013 in line with the date and the referendum will occur. So, we've got all of this. We've done all this work. We know where we're at this particular stage. We've seen now um, this timeline that comes back from papal decrees and decisions, the this discovery, the d doctrine of discovery. We come back to Habakkuk's response. Though the chair, this is his last, you know, when he saw all of this stuff. This is, I guess, one of the things that gives me hope when I read through the book of Habakkuk and I came to the last uh, chapter, he says, Though the cherry tree does not blossom and the strawberries don't ripen, though the apples are warm eaten and the wheat feels stunted, though the sheep pens are sheep, sheepless and the cattle barns empty, I'm singing joyful praises to, the, to God. I'm turning cartwheels of joy to my Saviour God, counting on God's rule to prevail. I take heart and gain strength. I run like a deer. I feel like I'm king of the mountain. 
in terms of all of those issues that Habakkuk faced, he could come up with this response. I'll leave that to us as Indigenous people, whether this could be our response too. Because we know how hard it is and how, how challenging it is. But we as Christians need to come back to something like this. We need to some motivation. And the other response too for, for me to, today too is to remember that one word that I left you with yesterday. And that word was your inheritance, your inheritance rights. <coughs> because that's who we are. God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. We can say that to the Pope. We can say that to the Prime Minister. We can say that to our Premiers. We can say that to the President of the United States. God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors, even though that that particular choice may mean our death. I'll leave the open for questions. Yeah. Um, in the conversation around Taiwan, I'm just wondering what your perspective is on Marvel's Avengers and the uh, separation of the Avengers sovereignty and the creation of the Avengers government, and uh, whether you think that's helpful or not. Oh, very helpful. Him as well as uh, what uh, Michael Anderson has done too amongst his mob up there in. Uh, around the Gaduga area. Uh, it actually <coughs> prompts the conversation. Um, just going back to the Doctrine of Discovery, there's just one other thing I'd like to mention there, and that is that, you know, with all this, these issues around ISIS, if you looked at what the Pope said he would do to other nations, listen to what ISIS is saying because the Pope directed all of his rage and his anger towards the Muslim community. Fascinating. And that's why when I put that Habakkuk passage up there, if you look at all of that stuff, go to the nations. After the Pope made those declarations, declared war on the, on the Muslim <coughs> nations, we get this response from the Muslim nations, and then we get you know Constantinople. And that only finished, what, in 1918, when the Ottoman Empire was destroyed, finally. And the Christians then took over the world again, you know, all the Christian names. <laughs> and now ISIS is coming back again. Church response, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's a couple of responses. I mean, uh, in working with the United Church, and I've only been with, working with them for a year, it is one of those very rare denominations that are taking these issues really seriously and trying to do something about it. And I take my hat off to the United Church for that. So at our last assembly over there in Perth, for example, took a proposal to them to repudiate from this denomination the doctrine of, of discovery. And that's important because 
when you consider the history of the Roman Catholic Church, when the Reformation took place, you know, the King of England then became the King of the Anglican system. And then you've got, you know, all these <coughs> other denominations that came out of that. And we are the recipients of that big tidal wave, that tsunami that came out of the Reformation. And so we've got all of these kinds of different Christian sects that come amongst us now and uh, influence the ways in which we then, you know, get saved or respond to our Creator. And uh, we, as Aboriginal people, haven't really come to grips with that yet. <laughs> and so this is only one of those many, many multitudes of denominations who are saying, well, let's take this seriously. We came out of the Catholic Church. We were a part of that history. What the Pope's decree said, we benefited from. There's a, you know, a, a single line in terms of that inheritance. They've inherited the Pope's decree in their own way. And so when they come amongst us here in Australia, all of the church land is on stolen land. It's still a crime scene. I'll, I'll just finish that one there. And so what, the, what we did there at the last assembly was to bring this presentation of the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery to the, to the floor, and they passed that. Now there's a period of going through and studying it and understanding it so that we, the church is fully understood, understands the issues around it. And then also within the Uniting Church is the only denomination here in the country that has what you would call a covenant with the Aboriginal people. Now the covenant is in there. They made that covenant back in 1985, I think it was, <coughs> to have this relationship with the Aboriginal people. And so you've got the Uniting Church here and the, and the Congress, the Uniting Aboriginal Island Christian Congress sitting outside but a part of. Not inside, but as a part of. And uh, they made the covenant together. Now personally, I have some challenges with that and I've challenged the church about that. What does a covenant mean? Is it a treaty? What are you doing about the land that you're on? Stolen land, are you paying the rent? Where is our Aboriginal ministries? Where's our training programs? All of these kind of issues that are a part of the covenanting process, we need to have a serious conversation about if we're gonna go anywhere with it. Otherwise it's still, you know, he's the vassal and we are still with our hands out, looking for help. So the, the idea is great, but we as Aboriginal people also need to come together and start challenging our own ways and our own institutions about this matter. And I've tr we've tried that with the Anglican Church. Man, they're hard to get through. So too are the Baptists and the Churches of Christ. Because Indigenous ministries and Indigenous issues are, you know, we're so marginalised. And they've got to come to grips with this particular doctrine. They've got to repudiate it. Because it's still infiltrates the theology and the thinking in the ways in which they deal with us. And so the Uniting Church has taken this particular road. I'm very happy to work with them and help them to do that. The Lutheran Church needs to do the same. And all these other denominations, in particular, the ones that I don't like needs to be really challenged the most is our Pentecostals. And I know that because I am, I came from a Pentecostal background, so I know that I know the insides and the outsides of that but it's so 
important that if we're going to be serious about being followers of Jesus, we need to get back to Deuteronomy 32.8 and say, hey, this is our land here. God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. <laughs> so what you doing here? Anyway, I'm getting a bit political now. <laughs> I've been thinking about this from um, a U.S. perspective. And I want to say something I'd like your reaction to it. I think the church also has a responsibility to reframe um, in terms of deconstructing and reconstructing our interpretation of scripture and our view of who God is because we have created for ourselves a God that follows our constitutional mandates versus a God who stands above those constitutional mandates. So there's no way that in, in our theological framing of our lives, we can celebrate this God who conquers and this God who goes out and takes land or, or mandates people to take land. And then on this end, understand why that is antithetical to mm. the gospel. Mm. And I don't have an answer. I'm just saying I'm having those thoughts and I'm wondering what your thought is about that. I, for too long, we, at least in the United States, have acted like people are born political. And people are not born into politics. People are born into faith. Something is happening in our, um, <laughs> our forming and shaping of the people mm. and who become the leaders, mm. I believe. I'm, I'm questioning. Mm. And a very good process and question, because we too are questioning that, that whole theological uh, thing that we've been given. And as indigenous theologians, we're trying to say, well, look, uh, here in Australia, for example, the, the political processes brought in this uh, process called reconciliation. And it made us scratch our heads as theologians because we were saying, well, hang on a sec. Reconciliation means that we had a relationship first Absolutely. and now we're trying to restore it. But we've never had a relationship, so how can we have a reconciliatory process? Or if we're gonna go down this track of reconciliation, are we gonna reconcile ourselves back to the beginning again and start the whole process again? So they suggested that in the U.S. to black people, and my response is we don't need a reconciliation hearing, we need a truth-telling hearing. Exactly. Yeah. Like they did in South Africa, and not like what they're doing in Canada with the stolen generations there, or, or the residential schools, a truth <laughs> and reconciliation commission. We're asking, I mean, just, just two weeks ago, I've asked our New South Wales government to have, give us a, a truth and reconciliation commission because we need to tell our story. Right. It's, still a, it's still a crime scene. And the only way to get the victims out of that is to let them tell their story. Yeah, and the, the theology, what we're trying to do as, as, uh, as theologians is how do we bypass this story that we've been given, <coughs> that Peter is the original Pope, and go back to the original story, but using our own cultural ways of doing that. And so, you know, like I mentioned yesterday, that uh, for us, as I said at the feet of my elders, 
uh, they've told me that the Bible is tribal. It comes from a tribal people over there. So we can look at it through the eyes of tribal people. And that Jesus was a tribal man. He came from the tribe of Judah. And that his genealogy shows you very clearly that's very indigenous. If you ask this old man here sitting beside you, he can tell you right back where his ancestors are. He can take you to the very spot <laughs> in his country. That's his inheritance. And that's Jesus' inheritance. So the Bible is very tribal, but it's been Europeanized. It's been used by the dominant powers to actually subjugate, as, as we can see here in the Doctrine of Discovery. It's been the one that's been brutalizing us rather than liberating us. Um, I guess yesterday we said today you'd be talking about treaties, but you've spoken a lot about constitutional recognition. I, I guess in your mind are they the same thing or are they different things? Because in my mind a treaty is between two equal parties that yeah. come to the table and say we're equal, whereas constitutional recognition is that top down, still that paternalism. So I guess can you Uh, in our present conversation, national conversation, we're talking about constitutional recognition. So we thought, I thought I would, we'd just make sure we understood where we're at at this particular uh, stage of our national journey. When we get to the issues around treaty, um, there's a, there's, look, I was going to deal with this a bit, bit tomorrow, uh, but in terms of a treaty, we need to really rethink what we mean by that. And so that's why I showed you the Cherokee Treaty with the US government. It had at least some form to it. In our present day conversations, we don't even have the form yet. We don't even know what we're going to be negotiating about, how we live together. And even with, as, as our brother said here, with the Uniting Church, we have a covenant. But how do we make sure that that covenant is well, covenant is supposed to be a treaty. And how do we make that covenant work for the benefit of both parties, not just for the indigenous peoples? But we, at the moment, there is no what you would call uh, clear guidelines as to how that particular treaty will, or covenant will, will work. In New South Wales, we're just putting a proposal to the Synod to actually pay the rent. And if that can get through, what we're asking is that if you're going to sell any of the stolen land out here, we need to have a seat at the table and we need to get benefits from it. And if we want that piece of property, if it's in the middle of Bloomin' Pitt Street, Sydney, and if we want it, that's ours. How far are you going with that? <laughs> <laughs> we're dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> Second generation settler, I'm thinking when I vote, I've either got to vote for constitutional recognition, which is not a treaty, or I've got to say no, I don't want that. But my other option at the vote is I actually want a treaty. Um, so I was going to ask, so what advice would you give to a second generation settler? But it sounds like you're saying there's a third way, which is constitutional recognition is a step towards a treaty. So can you help me figure out how to vote? <laughs> You're asking a fellow who doesn't vote. 
I don't vote because I've got a conscience. I can't give my consent to the things that are happening to my people. And I can't face my people in jail or with any other disease and stuff and saying, look, I gave my consent for this to happen to you. So that's the reason why I don't, I don't vote. People say I should vote. I don't, I can't, my conscience won't allow me. I need to look my people in the eye and say, listen, I did not give consent to the intervention in the Northern Territory. I resist that. So I can look him in the eye and say, brother, I didn't give my consent. That's important to me. It might not be important to you or others, but it, it drives me. And I know in this country here, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's illegal not to vote. Um, I can't tell you how to vote. All I can do is present you the evidence and then you can make up your own mind around your own conscience. If you looked at the constitution, you'd realize that it was written in the 1900s by a group of white fellows. For me personally, there's a, a couple of things. One, the constitution needs to change. It doesn't have what you would call any Christian values in it or godly values. There is no mention of God in it. And if you start to compare the, uh, our constitution with other, con other national constitutions, you'll find some deep flaws in it. It's, we still have to kowtow to the Queen. And in uh, Queensland, in the Queensland Constitution, for example, I think it's in section 69, it used to be in section 49 of the Constitution, that uh, there's this little word about our land up there being the wastelands belonging to the Queen. It's still in the Constitution. And you read the, you know, the preamble to the Constitution of recognizing us, but then they call the land the wastelands belonging to the Queen. So I have a conscience that can't give any more permission. I can't give my consent to that any longer. That's just me. Another, another conversation that we're starting to have, and you should just keep your ears pricked at this one here, and that is that we're looking at becoming, in the future, a republic. That discussion might, or that conversation might take a little bit more, uh, become a little bit more interesting once the Queen dies. Because I don't think Australia would like to have Charlie as their king. That's just my observation. But I don't know, I, I can't read the Australian population that well. But if it goes down that track, we might have to make a decision about uh, constitutional monarchy and uh, whether we do become a republic. On the other hand, there are movements within the country, like uh, with Michael Anderson and our brother up in Cairns there, Jeremy, who have started this process of saying, oh, we'll just declare our own sovereignty in our own lands. Now, there's challenges to that, but it's inspiring to see that start starting to take place. But what, uh, what Michael is calling for is really a republic of Aboriginal nations. Now that excites me because we could then start to look at our own constitutional process and when you're talking about treaties and stuff, that's where the conversation would take place because now we've got a group of nation groups within Australia, including my Cubby Cubby people and Gurang people and the Walpuri people who've got their own sovereign nations, who are their own sovereign nations realising that we have never ceded our authority or our sovereignty because we don't have a, a treaty. 
And once we cut that conversation, I think that's where uh, we'll, we'll be able to work through those, those kind of issues. But it's down the track a bit. Uh, the thing is, just remember 1967, it's only from that part onwards that we started this conversation. So we're not even 50 years old yet. And so it's, it's, it's exciting for me to see these things come out of, the, out of our social platforms from, from around the country. We've got a long way to go, but our younger people are starting to get a little bit more anxious than we are. But the us older people here, we have to lay that foundation and we're starting to lay that foundation, starting these conversations. Bro, the question I'm getting a sense of around voting is, is it more around the fact that is, is your opinion, is constitutional reform a step in the right in the right direction? Because Black Forest want a treaty which gives us real tangible rights, mm. but constitutional reform gives us recognition. So is that a step in the right direction for people who are voting to want to step up and make a decision in that regard? In, yeah, in terms of the present constitution, to me it's just an interim measure but it is important that we change the language within the Constitution to reflect a much more multicultural Australia rather than a white Australia. White Australia, yeah. So, yeah, please go ahead and vote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> question. Um, I understand the inheritance now um, from yesterday and everything. So when the treaty goes through, which, which I don't understand why it's so hard, but anyway, I'm just a very simple person. Um, does that mean that people who have been here who are or have white, um, who have bought land and they didn't know about inheritance and all this sort of stuff and um, Aboriginal land, so they've got land. So once this treaty goes through, does that mean to say that even though we recognise um, Aboriginal um, land ownership and stuff, so where does that put generations that have worked the land for three or four or five generations? Um, where, where does that put them with Aboriginal land? Yeah, but this is my family's land and I've worked this land and this farmland. And does that mean after the treaty that it gives um, Aborigines who owned that land originally come and say, look, you know, I want that back. Like, do you know, I'm known for any of this better in the work. No, you're not. Do, no. Do you know what I mean? And mm. these things need to be talked about because I think yeah. from a white person's point of view, yeah. um, it's probably what puts fear into white mm. people and yet we shouldn't. We should be able to talk mm. about this and, you know, and, and recognise a whole lot of stuff. I don't want to own any more local mm. bread, so... It's a really good question. I understand your question. Look, the Native Title Act and the Native Title Process answered a lot of those particular queries. In the new, at, at this particular stage in our journey, all land is owned by the Crown. Even if, if you've got freehold title, it's still owned by the Crown. You're only leasing it from the Crown. It's not your land. Um, once if we if we go down this track of uh, a republic, uh, we've got to ask the question: What happens then to those issues of land? Do we still s stick with the Torrens titles? Do we go back to an allodial title? And I mean, you try to try to do some research around all the different titles that live on that that the land is governed under. The, the strongest title is the allodian title, and I won't go into that today. But that allodial title 
is a much more powerful title than even freehold title and crown, t crown lands. And what our Aboriginal, some of our Aboriginal people are starting to talk about is that we held a lodial title. Therefore, once that title is recognised, do we bring in a Torrens title to a leasehold title? Do we bring a freehold title? I, mean, I don't know, girl. <laughs> but all I know is, all I do know is that uh, if you look at our story here as a nation, I think your landholders, we the host people, have been very generous in the ways in which we have dealt with these matters and with those people there. We're not going to, you know, come in and say this is. I like this house here, this is really nice. That that's, doesn't even enter into our thinking. It's working, and at the other end of the spectrum too, just realise that this is not your, your particular issue individually. This is a much more bigger thing. This is a national issue. And it's up to us to look at the ways in which, uh, or the, uh, the, the politicians we vote for, who can actually articulate these particular issues much more clearly. We're hoping that Pat Dodson might do that. But if he doesn't, somebody else will have to get up and start to articulate what we're talking about when we're talking about treaty, sovereignty, and those kind of issues. At the moment, we don't have that clear voice. And we have to ask the other question, too, along this process, which is brought up by the Uniting Church here. What is the church's role in this? And how do we, who adhere to these scriptures, deal with the issue of uh, sovereignty and treaty? And that's a harder one as well, because you've got harder politicians. Think about your priests and your pastors. Oh. <laughs> that's worse. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm. 
Mm. Came from the Pope. finish with that because I think it, it comes back to that word which has been running the thread that's been running through here that we can take away from here our inheritance God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors and I think that that's the driving force behind what we're looking at today we've never ever spoken about inheritance we've gone into the political arena and tried to get our land rights there but it's already been given to us it's our inheritance and I'll leave it to that. And tomorrow we'll talk about did Jesus believe in land rights? God bless you. This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.